brought your Bibles with you today. We are continuing our sermon series in 2 Samuel, so I invite you to open up with me to chapter 19 of 2 Samuel, uh, the passages in your bulletins uh, this morning, and uh, on page 272 of the Blue Bibles. So for those of us who are feeling a bit exhausted and battered by the time that we have spent here in 2 Samuel and in the darkness of 2 Samuel. I will say this, we are approaching the end of the book. This is what God has for us, and we're committed to working our way through it. This is the Word of God. It's profitable for us. It's inspired by the Spirit of God. It's profitable for our teaching, our reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But we've got, and we are approaching the end, we've got another couple of tough chapters in front of us both this week and next. Uh, Today's reading is going to take us through chapter 20, and I'll read that in its entirety, but we're beginning at the end of 19, where we find ourselves in the middle of an eruption of fierce words between the men of Israel and the men of Judah in the course of David's return. Essentially, what you have here is Israel being upset with Judah because Judah, David's tribe, has taken the lead in returning David as king to Jerusalem. Now, if you were with us last week, perhaps you will recall that Israel had this idea that all was said and done. Uh, David at least was the one who was king before. They should come to David, appeal to David, and uh, bring David back as king. So as Israel looks at this return of David, they look at it and think, we thought of this first. Okay, this was our idea that we should bring him back in and we should bring him back in as king. And now Judah, which is to say David's tribe, is actually, they are actually the ones who are ushering David back into Jerusalem. And Israel thinks of this and says, listen, we thought of it first. And besides that, we've got 10 tribes. You're only one tribe. We should take precedence here in this. So There's an argument that arises, and that's the setting that we've got before us today. You'd be excused for thinking that it sounds much like the disciples of our Lord arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest and who is going to be able to sit closest to Jesus. In any case, the argument sets the stage for another rebellion against God's anointed king in chapter 20. This is the living word of the living God. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king and in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. 
So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together with me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time that had been set, that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And when they were at the, gate, the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath, fastened on his thigh, and as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri, and one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth Maacah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near her. And the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servants, servant. And he answered, I'm listening. And then she said, They used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man, a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. 
So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Carathites and the Pelathites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat was the son of Ahalud was the recorder, and Shiva was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were priests, and Ira the Jerite was also David's priest. Thus far the word of God. Lord, we pray that you would help us with this word this morning. We pray that you would help us to understand it, and we pray that through this word you would build us up in our faith. Lord, we desire to live for you. We desire to live for you even this week as your people. And so we pray that as we hear your word week after week, we pray that we would take it in, that your spirit would take it into our lives, and that you would help us to be a people of your word, living accordingly. And we pray that you'd be gracious to us then as we hear it this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, I know. I understand. I get it. As I read this for us this morning, you were saying to yourself, uh, here we go again, or this has a familiar ring to it, or perhaps just a quick lament went up in your heart to say, not again. We've seen so much of this already in this book. Not again. We can't be talking about this same thing again. Another betrayal, another rebellion, another murder, another beheading. Enough already. When does it stop? When does it end? Now, if you have looked in your Bibles ahead asking yourself that question, when does it end? You may have noticed that 2 Samuel has 24 chapters. Being in verse 20, the answer, at least with respect to 2 Samuel, is pretty soon. Pretty soon, 2 Samuel comes to an end. But if we ask the question, no, 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 really, really, when does all of this come to an end? then the answer to that question is at the sound of the last trumpet. That's when it comes to an end. At the sound of the last trumpet. I don't know if you caught it. I tried to emphasize it a little bit in the reading that I just did for us. But there are two trumpets that sound in the passage before us this morning. One is at the beginning of the passage. It is sounded uh, by Sheba. And Sheba sounds the trumpet, the shofar, okay, that, that that idea, the ram's horn, he sounds the ram's horn to initiate the rebellion, to say, this is it. Everybody, get back to your houses. We're not part of David anymore. And then there is, at the end of our passage, another sounding of the shofar by, of course, Joab. When Joab has completed his brutal work, Joab sounds the horn to bring this particular rebellion to a conclusion. Now, on a broader scale, the shofar of humanity's rebellion was blown in the garden. That's when the rebellion kicked off, and the last shofar will sound when, in the words of 1 Thessalonians 4, when the Lord himself will descend from heaven 
with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. When that happens, when you hear that trumpet, then shall the rebellion be over. The king's enemies will be put down once and for all. And the dead shall be raised, and we shall be changed at the last trumpet. O Lord, haste the day. But for now, for now, the rebellion continues. And of course, this rebellion of which we speak, whether it's a particular one here or the one that encompasses uh, Eden all the way up to the return of Christ, it is experienced by us sometimes in a more acute fashion, sometimes in a less acute way, but it is always there. And through it, the story of the Bible, the story of Scripture, is that the Lord, in the midst of that rebellion, has called out and has saved a people unto himself. And even in rebellion after rebellion, God preserves his people. God preserves his faithful church, his remnant. He preserves in this world. And he tells his followers... He equips his followers, he trains his followers to say to them, and you're going to have to stand. You're going to have to be alert. You're going to have to fight in the midst of this rebellion. That's our story. That is the story of 2 Samuel. And he is sticking with that story. He is sticking with it again and again. To say it in the words of Jesus, let's, let's put this in the picture of Jesus, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's what Jesus said. That's what he said to his disciples. You're going to have trouble. You are going to have lots of it. If you want to put it in terms that we recognize from 2 Samuel, the term you would use is the sword will not depart. Sword has come into the household and the sword will not depart. We may have hoped that with Absalom's death, with the putting down of that rebellion, perhaps then the sword would have departed. Absalom's death was the third child that we know of, of David's to be killed in connection with everything and all of his sins. But no, the sword does not depart. The rebellion is devilishly dogged. And we can sometimes experience this rebellion that exists in this world as the world persecuting the people of God, the world not liking the church, not liking those who bring light into the world, who, are, who speak of Christ in, uh, in terms of 2 Samuel. That would be the equivalent of the Philistines, right? The, the presence of the Philistines. They're the world attacking the church. We can experience the rebellion not only from the world, but we can experience the rebellion internally as well. In the warfare of our own persons, flesh waging war against the spirit, as Peter would describe it, as Paul would describe it, as James would describe it. There's, there's the external rebellion that takes place of the world. There's the internal of the heart rebellion that takes place. And we also can experience rebellion that takes place within the community, within the household of faith. That's what you've got here in terms of the rebellion that we're seeing in 2 Samuel. 
It's a rebellion that is close to home. It is within, in terms of Absalom, within the home itself. And in terms of Sheba, it is within the community of Israel as well. And our New Testament reading, and the reason that I had us look at that passage where Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, is to show us that this continues, that this isn't something that stops at the end of 2 Samuel. Did you hear what Paul said there? He said about himself, all I can say is that imprisonment and inflictions await me wherever I go. But he said to the Ephesian elders regarding their ministry, he says this in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's the same kind of stuff that we see going on in 2 Samuel as well. Call it what you will. Fierce wolves will come in among you. And then verse 30, and from among you, from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Sheba's rebellion, and even perhaps more so Joab's return to his position, are examples of exactly this warning. From among yourselves, from among you, will arise those who will draw people away to themselves. And so what we're looking at today in chapter 20 is not the first rebellion. It's not even the first rebellion. <laughs> we just finished a rebellion, right? We, in fact, we haven't even finished the last rebellion. We haven't even made it to Jerusalem back yet before the next rebellion is in full force and the troops need to be marshaled once again. And it is not the last rebellion either. And to some extent, what I, what I want to suggest to us is that's maddening. It's maddening that it's like that in this world. Take it on a personal level in the first place. It is maddening that some sins in your life, in my life, some sins in our lives will not stay dead. That's maddening. When they come back after you think they're gone, that's a maddening reality. It's maddening when we see some family dynamics that exist within our families that you think we should be able to get over this, we should be able to work through this thing, it's maddening when those same family dynamics show up year after year and even generation after generation. It is maddening when one church issue is followed quickly by another church issue. If you sit, I mean, this is as a member of the congregation, but if you sit on the session of the church or on the diaconate of the church, you get frustrated because you think, oh, I wish that these issues would stop coming up so that we could get on with the mission that God has entrusted to us as a church. But it's maddening when one issue follows another issue within the church. It is maddening when one issue follows another issue in the presbytery and the collection of churches in this area. It is maddening when one issue follows another issue in the General Assembly. I've been in the PCA for half of its existence. I think that math is correct. No, no, I've been in it longer than that. I've been ordained in it for more than, for half of its existence now. And there's never been a time when it hasn't been a crisis in the PCA and the General Assembly. 
Never. And I tell young guys who come to me and say, listen, what do you think about this particular crisis? I say to them, listen, just a little perspective here. This is just the next crisis that exists within the PCA. This is the next one that's going on in the church. It's maddening that there's issue after issue after issue. It's maddening that that's the case in the world we live in as well. If you think we've overcome one particular societal ill, the next one will be right behind it also. It is absolutely maddening. The wrong, to quote the hymn with which we started today, the wrong seems oft so strong. So what does our king say to us? What does our king say then to us in the midst of this ongoing rebellion with its cycles, with its one after another cycles? The king turns to us and says, take courage. I've overcome the world. Or, to use the words of the hymn, God is the ruler yet. Though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. The king says to us that in my death and in my resurrection, I have established a beachhead against the rebellion. I have established a beachhead of peace. And there will be an increase of that peace that will come to its completion when I return. When I return, that will be the completion of the peace of the beachhead which I have established now in the world. So let's consider this text today as it unpacks the idea of this rebellion. And not just the idea of rebellion in theory or the idea of rebellion in histor historically, but as ever operative. The things that we will see here are actually ever operative until the last trumpet. And if we are called, as we are, verse on the front of your bulletin, we are called to strive for peace for, with everyone. If we are called to strive after peace, then it behooves us to understand the rebellion and the dynamics of the rebellion. If we are called to, as we saw in our call to worship Psalm 122, if we are called to seek the shalom of Jerusalem, then you need to understand the rebellion and what goes on with the rebellion. All right, so our passage, as I've already indicated even before I read it, begins with an argument. Israel and Judah are hot with each other. They're angry. Now, in hindsight, right, with a little bit of perspective, we're not in the midst of that particular fight right now, Israel could simply have said, we get it. We understand. We know that David's from Judah. We get it. We understand. We understand that we were just significant leaders, participants in the rebellion against David. We get it. Judah, love you. We'll be right behind you. We'll be right there with you. You take the lead. We'll be right behind you. They could have said that's all, that's all it would have taken. Judah, conversely, could have said, we get it. We appreciate that you guys wanted to bring back the king. That's, a, that's an important sign of your repentance. And even though he's our closest, I tell you what, come alongside of us. Come alongside of us. We'll bring the king back into Jerusalem. United, reconciled, all is good. But of course, that's not what happened at all. And we are thus shown the, the, if you, the roots of the rebellion or the seeds of this rebellion, and they are exactly what you would expect. In fact, if you were with us in Sunday school this morning, they are nearly the exact same list that closed out the passage today that we looked at from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. What are the seeds? What's at the root of the rebellion? Well, it's, it's jealousy. 
and envy and hatred and pride and selfish ambition and I want to be firstness. I want to be closest to the king. I want him to be with us more than others. It's strife, it's dissensions, it's divisions, and of course it's fits of anger. You can call it what you will. What does Paul call it in the New Testament? Works of the flesh. Works of the flesh. They're the the same things that are at work here. They're the same things that have existed since the beginning of the fall of mankind into sin and the same things that you and I battle with as well. They're never to be underestimated in their power, in their damage potential, or in their proximity. In their proximity to us, the seeds or the roots of that rebellion are those, and they are followed by the words of rebellion. I won't reread the words that are contained there at the end of 19. But blows aren't being exchanged there. Nobody's taking up weapons there. Words are being exchanged. And then we get this final capstone of chapter 19. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. Words revealed the rebellion of the heart. And then words served to inflame the rebellion of the heart. And we've looked at this plenty of times before. We can look at the New Testament and we understand this, that, that what comes out of the mouth is what is flowing forth, what is bubbling up from those things, those seeds, those works of the flesh that we just described. They're at work in the heart and they, they boil out, they come out in the words of the mouth. Gordon Ketty writes this about this particular situation. When suspicion rules the heart, all evidence proves the other fellow guilty. When suspicion rules the heart, all evidence proves the other fellow guilty. It wouldn't have mattered at that point what anybody said, because what anybody was saying was overruled by the suspicion that the other people hearing it heard when they spoke. It just showed their guilt. It just increased their guilt. And of course then the rebellious words of Sheba catalyze the movement, the rebellion itself where he says, we have no portion in David, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. And those words expose the real heart of this rebellion. And the real heart of the rebellion is taking your stand against the Lord's anointed. That's what we're seeing here as plainly as we can see it. The anointed king is the lightning rod for the rebellion. The king doesn't like us. The king doesn't trust us. The king doesn't treat us as family or respect us. The king plays favorite. The king is stingy. The king is not generous. He is selfish. We don't have any portion. We don't have any inheritance in him. David is of Judah, and all he cares about, after all, are his brothers and sisters from Judah. Now, in a general sense, we can talk about this as the burden of leadership, as part and parcel with leadership. If you are in charge of something, whatever it is, you will get the blame. 
count on it. You, you will be the lightning rod. All things will be attracted to you. Call it whatever you want. Call it the buck stops here principle. You can think of endless examples of this. The scriptural one that comes first to my mind is to think of Moses. Is to think of all of the people who led the revolts, the rebellions, and the complaints against Moses himself. It is a general principle, right, that the leadership is the lightning rod for it. But it flows, and this is what this passage helps us to see very clearly, it flows, all of that rebellion against the leadership flows from a specific source. And that is to say this, all rebellion, all rebellion from Eden all the way then up to the last trumpet is at its heart a rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. It does, it's not all stated as clearly as it's obviously completely stated clearly in this text right here. But all rebellion that exists is at heart that rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. That's why, and some of us have talked about this in conversations, that's why David in Psalm 51, reflecting on his sin, while he recognizes certainly that he was in rebellion and that had manifestations against Uriah and Bathsheba and against all of the community of Israel, he can say there, against you, against the Lord, and against the Lord only have I sinned and done that which is evil in its sight. He recognizes that ultimately this earthly rebellion that he did in not listening to the law of God and violating the principles of shalom of that family was ultimately rebellion against God. And, and it is why the moment when the crowds are looking at Jesus and he's brought back out by Pilate is so significant for all of us in understanding who we are in as our humanity and rebellion against God when they shout out, crucify him. Crucify him. Get rid of the anointed one. Get rid of the Lord and his anointed. All rebellion attaches to that rebellion that is there. And then the passage, as it goes on then, describes for us the devastation of the rebellion that takes place. It's shown to us initially in the sad fate of these women. That's verse 3. That's the first thing that David does when he gets back into Jerusalem. The women, the concubines that he had previously left in Jerusalem, who were then further violated by Absalom in his wickedness, leaving David with absolutely no good options. He provides for them, but he essentially cloisters them in a life of widowhood. It's a sad image for us, of the division, of the isolation that rebellion brings, not only to those who perpetrate, but those who are victimized by the rebellion as well. Rebellion can have, at least in terms of this life, permanent impact on somebody's situation, on an internal or external aspect of a person's life. That's, of course, the result of the rebellion of Absalom. And then we go into the entire story of the rebellion and the results of the rebellion uh, that continue through Amasa, right? Amasa is unable to raise the troops that were needed. David sends him out to Judah and says, raise up from amongst Judah troops to go out and go against Sheba. And then Abishai, when Amasa doesn't come back in time, Abishai is given command. He's given command of his Lord's troops, 
which is to say he's giving command of Joab's troops. Eh? He's giving command of Joab's troops only to be quickly, of course, overshadowed by his brother Joab. And, and really, as much as this is a story of Sheba's rebellion, and it's probably called the Rebellion of Sheba as a header in your Bible, this is also a story of Joab's return to position, return of this man and his murderous, cold-blooded sword into the house of David, into the position of authority. David had tried to replace him, tried to replace him with Amasa, doesn't turn to him when Amasa doesn't show up, turns to Abishai, his brother, but Joab gets in. Joab does what Joab does. He murdered Amasa. He came up to him with smiles and with a kiss, asking him about his welfare, which is to say, just so you know, it says, is it well with you, my brother? It's how's your shalom? How's your shalom? Be careful of that guy. How's your shalom is violated then completely by Joab's sword. Rebellion is a violation of shalom. And sin has been defined, I think, well as a violation of shalom. Joab will thus be used to put down the rebellion only to be once again, as we see in the very end of this chapter, reinstated in command of the army, which to me is maddening. It's maddening that he gets this position back. This cold-blooded murderer in command of the army of a man who for all of his hearts is a man after God's own heart, that this man should get back into that position is maddening. And then the text goes on for us to show us the resolution of this rebellion. The resolution of this rebellion comes from two sources. The first is this wise woman, or at least we'll point to her first. She's the only one who seems to be able to stop Joab from his murderous ways. She appeals to the law of God. Joab is not following the law of God. He needed to seek a means of not going after the city according to the law of God. She appeals to the heritage. She appeals to the wisdom to save the city. Now, I think I've said this before, um, but by way of illustration, when people would come to visit us in Ukraine uh, and, and we would give them a talk about, you know, how do you be safe in this culture? What happens if you get in trouble? Because sometimes situations would arise, people were out by themselves, they didn't know what to do, and they got into trouble with folks. And, and our advice to them was, if you get in trouble, go to a babushka. Go to a babushka. Now, babushka is grandmother, okay? Go to a grandmother. And the reason that we told them that is because the meanest, toughest Ukrainian guys will back down. They will back down when a woman of that stature, they were never tall, they were only ever about this tall, but when a woman of that stature says, you need to back off, you need to be at peace, you need to leave this person alone, they will turn and they will walk away. There's wisdom, there was respect, there was maturity that was there. Men, 
You need the peaceable wisdom of the ladies around you, especially to cool the rebellious spirit that can come up. And ladies, we may not often admit it, we need you to do exactly that. Now the second source of the resolution of this rebellion is a phrase that I just want to kind of con conclude with in verse 2. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Followed their king steadfastly. The literal translation of that is that the men of Judah clung to their king. They clung to their king. We are instructed in Genesis, men cling to your wives. Ruth clung to Naomi. And Paul, translating the word into Greek, says to the church, cling to what is good. But the fundamental peacemaking, rebellion crushing strategy we must follow is this. Cling to the king. Cling to the king. To the anointed one. To Jesus. There is a rebelliousness that is in each and every one of us in our hearts. Some of us manifest it more overtly than others. Laura and I had the joy of watching three grandkids yesterday. And rebelliousness does not need to be taught. Rebelliousness exists the moment authority says, would you please not drag whatever this is across the sofa like that? And the eyes turn and the head goes over and you can see the spirit that is there immediately. Rebelliousness exists in every single one of us. That's a, that's a, any more statements will be clarifying and implicating on one of these child. That is the most innocent looking child I can possibly imagine who looks me in the eye and says, make me, you know, if you can, make me listen to you right now. Rebelliousness is sometimes overt and sometimes it's not, but it's there. And there is rebelliousness in our homes. There may be rebelliousness of spirit between brothers between brothers and sisters, between parents and children, or children and parents, or husband and wife. There's rebelliousness that is a spirit that can exist in the church as well, within the community of faith, and it certainly exists within the world around us. Parenthetical comment, I'm not preaching this sermon to point out anybody in particular or to try and say, I'm, I'm thinking about you right now. I'm not thinking about you if you think I'm thinking about you uh, right now. Rebellion might come from us or upon us or sometimes we might be swept up in a rebellion that is simply happening around us. And that will be the case until the last trumpet sounds. Until the last trumpet sounds. That's what the Bible says. That's what the first hymn said. The battle is not done. You might think it's done. 
when Joab blows the shofar. But you ought to know when the shofar is in Joab's hands, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be glorified and earth and heaven be one. So as those who cling to the king, let me just start internally and say this. Check your hearts. Check your hearts. Do you see it in there? Do you see the operative things, the works of the flesh, the jealousy, the envy, the hatefulness, the dissensions, the divisions, the rivalries? Check your heart. Check your mouth. Check the things that are coming out of your mouth because if you're not able to explore whether or not those things in your are, are, are in your heart, check your mouth. Check the things that you've said. They'll help you to discern exactly what's going on in your heart. Check your actions. Now, I hope nobody's picking up a sword, grabbing somebody's beard, uh, and feigning a kiss. But if you got a proximity warning, you, you're just avoiding some people like that. Can you see it in your eyes? Can you see it in your eyes? The disdain, the hatred, the avoidance that's there. Check it. Check the actions. Rebellion brings with it devastation. Don't doubt that. And listen to the peaceful words of the wise who are around you, men or women. And take up the charge that we have from the king. Here's the charge that we've got from our king. And I'm going to keep this very simple. Here's the charge that we have from our king. Personal first. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You want to know where to start? It's got to rule there. That's where it has to rule. That's where the rebellion has its center point. Its roots are all right here, not out someplace else. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And then we do have a follow-up command. Strive for peace with everyone. As much as it depends on you. Can you resolve everything? Absolutely not. Strive for peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. Strive for unity. Strive for peace within your house, within your church. You've taken vows to that effect. To study, to pursue the peace and the purity of the church. One commentator reminded me of that. You've taken vows to strive for the peace of the church. Strive for the peace of your neighborhood, of your nation. Strive for the peace of it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to those ends. We pray that you would keep us faithful, keep us true, protect us from ourselves, protect us from others, and may we be peacemakers where we have opportunity to do so. Thank you for the peace, Jesus, that you have purchased, that you have established, and that you will bring to completion when you return. And we pray in your name. Amen.